I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. Imagine a universe where people said what they actually think. So like pretend that you're John Longmire and I'm a journalist, right? And I go, hey, John. Are you interested in that North Melbourne job? To be honest, yeah, I kind of am. Like, I really like Melbourne. I like the (laughs) cafe culture. I like wearing black. Yeah, I'm just trying to eke it out. I'll see how we go. (laughs) (laughs) What about if, Nick, if you were Alan Richardson? What did you really think about St Kilda's prospects for this year? (laughs) I don't know, but I've booked my trip to Europe in September. (laughs) (laughs) So, Alistair Clarkson, tell us, are you going to Carlton next year? Are you kidding me? I'm not going to Carlton. As soon as my Hawthorne gig's over, I'm going to kick my shoes off. I'm going to sit down and take a long, hard board position somewhere that pays me a lot of money where I don't have anything stressful in my life. <laughs> You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Welcome back to the Outer Sanctum for another week. Some would call it the Devil's Playground. <laughs> I'm Emma Race. <laughs> and that was a little joke from my friend Alicia sometimes. I'm so pleased to be back here with my football-loving lady friends. I'm going to let you introduce yourselves. I'm Nicole Hayes. I'm Lucy Race. I'm Alicia sometimes. I really made you laugh saying that. Yes. Alicia was being very rude on the text messages earlier this week and we were giggling our heads off and I said I was going to... Give me a little private joke there. Yeah. Do a little private joke for her, but I'm sure everyone can get behind that. Hey, it's been an unbelievable week for women's sport. And we really want to talk about that. So let's just quickly talk about some of the highlights from the AFLM over the weekend. I couldn't believe Port got up over Geelong because I feel like Geelong are just, they've just been so good. Mm. And I feel like they're flying under the radar because they, they, you just expect them to be good every week. And for Port to get that, it's a massive scalp, right? Mm. Mm. The only thing is that they are not very good after the bye. Yeah. It's like so lost weird. eight out of nine or something yeah. in the last nine, which is really interesting, isn't it? I wonder if that's, I mean, they talk about momentum and all the rest of it, or maybe they just take their foot off the pedal a little bit because they can. Who knows? I find that such a weird argument, right? Because you think about the playing group nine years ago, completely different to the playing mm. group today. So I go like, mm. it's just the jumper. What, the jumper um, gets tired after the bye? Like, <laughs> I do feel like I mean? the coach was fairly similar. The coach is the same, but I don't know. I think that's where it comes into the head stuff, that so much of football is played about Above the shoulders, mm. maybe it does come into it. And every car needs to put, you know, when you're driving, you need to put your foot off the pedal, otherwise you're going to run into a building. Mm. <laughs> or Port Adelaide. Yeah. On that note. Don't get a lift home with Alicia. <laughs> um, the Collingwood Dogs game was the biggest one of the round. Oh, totally. I mean, you, you expected Collingwood to win, perhaps. I mean, and Bulldogs had been playing well. But look at where they at Collingwood are on the ladder. They're quite high, but they're not to me, playing like they're one of the best teams. Maybe that's just me. 
Well, they're just doing what they have to do a lot of the time, aren't they? I want a T-shirt doing what you have to do. <laughs> the latter is so weird, though. There's weird. only two Victorian teams. <laughs> Some people would say good, not weird. No, absolutely. Mm. I'm sure people would say good. And I'm sure that the people at AFL House are high-fiving each other every time they walk past each other. If only Gold Coast were in the, the top of the ladder, they'd be so happy. But it's so wide open mm-hmm. in the top eight at the moment. That's exciting. Yes, so Luke. can I ask you all a question? Mm. Who do you think, I'm going to ask this because it's the middle of the round and it's time to start looking towards mm-hmm. the end. Who do you think our two grand finalists are going to be this year? Emma Race. Geelong West Coast. Alicia. West Coast Collingwood again. Nick. Uh, no, I'm going, I think I'm with M. Geelong West Coast. I think they're the ones who are mm. most likely to deliver all season. This is the hard bit. This is where injuries catch up. This is the next half of the seasons where you see mm. the separate the chaff from wheat the wheat. From the chaff. <laughs> I was trying. I thought you were going to say men from the other men. I was, gonna... <laughs> and I was like, that's not going to work. Uh, I reckon Geelong Collingwood. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. That'd be a big one. If it's Geelong Collingwood, we will have to get to the MCG for our tickets. A week like early. Wednesday the week <laughs> before to sleep out. Um, good that Melbourne got the win. Did yeah. we, I was happy for them. Yeah, bless. No. Is it sort of almost patronising? Did you just say bless? People are pretty much, the fans had pretty much written themselves off for this year. And now they've got like that element of hope and there is nothing more dangerous and painful than hope. <laughs> Ooh. Said Barack Obama. <laughs> Could you have called the pain field? Um, <laughs> Could we have called the playing field the demon's yes, playground? Yes, we can. The demon's <laughs> playground, for oh, sure. Hilarious. Okay, the biggest news of the week for uh, for mine at least has been the Barty Green Fitzgibbons trio. Three women just heading up world sport. Unbelievable. Ash Barty is now number one. Oh, it was amazing. It feels like she's just got every trick in her pocket and she just doesn't lose her calm. But the thing I love about her most is she's always talking about the we. She's always about yeah. the team. Yeah. She's always talking about the team that's around her. Sally Fitzgibbons won in Rio at the Rio Pro. That takes her back up to number one, mm-hmm. which is extraordinary. But Hannah Green, Perth golfer who has been, um, this is her first major. She won the P it's so exciting for golf and the story of Hannah Green and the story of women's golf has been one that they have been left out in the wilderness until they got Shiloh Curtis at the head of (laughs) trying to pump up some powerhouse Shiloh Curtis who has been taken from footy over to golf and for her I can't imagine how exciting Hannah Green's win was and I thought she's probably the best person. We get her on the Outer Sanctum all the time to talk about footy but we asked her to record a little message for us about what Hannah Green's win is going to mean to golf. Hannah Green's win was special for so many reasons. She was the world number 114. She was unexpected to win. She was only in her second year on the LPGA Tour and uh, she led from the opening round right the way through. It's only her second year on the tour as a professional. So pretty amazing for her, of course. And this will set up her career and will change the way that she's viewed as an athlete in our sport. She's only the third Australian to win a major event behind the greats of Jan Stevenson and and Kari Webb. Um, So pretty amazing that she's one of only three Australian women to do that. And it was terrific for golf in, in many ways also. It's now a tangible example of success on the international stage that we probably haven't had since Kari's success. And it's just been extraordinary to see the mainstream media tell the story of Hannah and their success. But with that, we're able to then tell our story about what golf is and what it can be for little girls and for older women and anyone that wants to play the game that we hopefully can use Hannah's story to inspire other girls and women to take up the game and play it in a way that suits their needs. So 
pretty special. Probably the best story out of a lot of Hannah's win is it was during the weekend that the Kari Web Series Scholarship Program was run. Kari, obviously, the best Australian golfer we've ever produced. She is actually uh, has created this scholarship program whereby two young women every year, emerging talents, are given the opportunity to join Kari at a major event for a week. You know, they live in the house with her. They watch her prepare. Uh, they watch her train. They watch her eat. They watch her strategize. And she mentors them throughout that week. This year's uh, scholarship winners were present with Kari this week. They all lived in the house with Hannah. Also, Suo, another recipient of that. Stacey Peters, Golf Australia's female pathways manager, one of the first recipients of that scholarship, was also there in that house supporting them. And so there was this amazing contingent of generations of current and past Kari Webb scholarship holders who were there to witness um, Hannah Green win this major event. So terrific reward for Kari and the legacy that she hopes to leave in the game beyond her own playing career, that she wants to leave the game better than she found it, that when she eventually chooses to leave the tour, that there's not just one woman from Australia who's replaced her, but there's a whole swag of young women coming through the ranks. I think when you ask Kari what the legacy of her career will be or the thing that she wants to leave behind, it will be absolutely that there are many Hannahs in her wake. So pretty fantastic for Kari to be there this week, for all of those young women to be there and to celebrate Hannah's success and, and, and be part of her support crew as she won that first major. So Pretty special around and uh, history-making day for Australian women's golf. Amazing story there. <laughs> it's just fantastic to think about the legacy that Kari Webb has mm. given to golf and, and what that's going to mean going forward is just awesome. Of course, I love all of the things that will flow from this. I've watched, made sure I watched all the commercial news to make sure that all of the sports reports did start with those three stories just to make sure that mm-hmm. for some reason State of Origin and Israel mm. Folau didn't somehow take the limelight and they didn't, that these are such huge stories that they really were leading. I think it's a great sign that we won't have to have black caviar named as or any kind of animal, female animal named as the um, Australian female. Sportswoman <laughs> of the Year, which I think is always a relief. All right, is it time for us to roll up our sleeves and melee ladies? Yep. Okay, let's Yo. do it. I feel like that's rhetorical. The big story of this week, and I say this with trepidation because I really don't want to give this person much more airtime, but Israel Folau has been in the news. And what I want to say at the start of this conversation is that one thing that seems to be lost, although Sally Rugg did an amazing and exceptional job of it on Q&A this week, was reminding people that no one needs to be saved, not by any religion, not by anything that you believe in. Everyone who's listening to this podcast and everyone, no matter who they love, what they look like, which way they want to dress, whatever it is, you are all welcome here that you are perfect just the way you are and sport should be the one place where you feel welcome to do that. I don't think religious freedom gives anyone the right to be bigoted and to be bigoted and discriminate mm-hmm. against people. Exactly. I don't I think it's completely a non-negotiable. So it's frustrating and it's hurtful and I feel like it's bringing up so much of the pain that a lot of our listeners would have felt during the marriage equality debate and I'm really angry about that. Mm. But I want everyone to know that this is a safe place and we're going to handle this hopefully in a safe and responsible way so that it doesn't hurt further. I think what's really frustrating is that on one side of the ledger we've got people talking theoretically and talking about free speech and issues that are quite broad and don't necessarily pertain to your 
day-to-day life. And on the other hand, we're bringing into question just the actual identity of people. And we already know that there is vulnerabilities in terms of mental health and people feeling, oh, what's the word I'm trying to say, persecuted. It's not, it's not an equal argument. And there's an awful lot of people who do identify as Christians who are really upset about this as well, mm. seeing their religion being dragged through as as conflating religion and religious freedom with what was identified by the courts anyway as a breach of contract, mm. which is a separate thing altogether. But of course, there's a lot of power in trying to inspire people as it being some kind of ideological issue and not uh, specific mm. to Falau's particular working environment. And unfortunately, that is what brings the haters. Yeah, I think that uh, to question anyone's validity is completely outrageous and harmful and hurtful. The fact that it's disguised as religious freedom is completely ridiculous. Uh, It was great to hear Senator Keneally on the ABC this week saying, we are turning what is a contract issue into a debate about religious freedom. It's certainly nothing to do with that. Seeing someone's text this week, uh, have donated to help Izzy Folau in his fight, not because I agree with him, but because one, freedom means the freedom to say something that you think and be wrong. And two, those going after uh, Maria Folau have crossed a moral Rubicon that is destructive of marriage. That kind of language is horrific. Look, I'm no Kate Sear, but she came up with another thing that we hadn't thought about this week, which was that in Victoria, there's actually a law for overarching obligations of for people who fund legal cases. So that is people who put money in to support a case going to court, that they are also held to account in the same way that the lawyers are. So that there's a set of rules that apply to lawyers when they bring a case to court. And that in Victoria, those types of things, like um, trying to find a quick resolution and and behaving in a certain way, all of those things would apply also to people who have funded the case. So that's a very specific rule. We know that it it lives in Victorian legal cases and Kate is looking into whether or not it is national or in New South Wales where we anticipate that if Israel Folau takes this further, that that's where his case will take place. So um, stay tuned and we'll get an actual lawyer back in here to tell you what the actual lowdown is with that angle of this story. And it's also worth noting, of course, the GoFundMe shut down and it's been taken up now and the Australian Christian Lobby have donated $100,000 to his legal defence and half of his goal of $3 million is reached. There is kind of, I don't know if it's an exclusively Australian thing or not, but it is definitely an Australian thing that often you see culturally when somebody is told they can't do something or feel like they're being told they can't do something, they immediately say, well, then I'm going to do it. And it's this very unsophisticated kind of defensiveness. And I think there's an element of that in this campaign. It's just somebody's told them their rights are being impinged. So as a result, they're saying, well, then, I'm fighting back. There was a really interesting article by Ruby Hammond. We're going to post it. I just want to read something because it taps into something that we haven't talked about in terms of the Falau case. I'm just going to read a few little paragraphs from it. Missing from the public discourse is the background of how evangelical Christianity swept the Pacific Islands. This, the story of colonialism and Christian missionaries and Captain Cook and the destruction of local religions and languages, is the story of whiteness. White society has been the global driving force behind 
behind not only racism but homophobia and transphobia. Consider that an older report she's talking about in the Sydney Morning Herald during the Marriage Equality Survey, this article about Margaret Court, who is also a conservative Christian and a reverend, no less, who had spoken out against gay and trans people. Her comments were described merely as a denouncement of gay marriage where Falau's, the reports on Falau are that he's attacking gay people. So while he's attacking gay people, Margaret Court merely denounces marriage equality. And we know that the pushes to have Margaret Court Arena changed as the name, that kind of just went away. Mm. So that's another part of this story which is incredibly complicated but I just wanted to say that it does also exist Mm. in the discourse of this and uh, Ruby Hammond was way more eloquent than I could ever be on it. So we'll post this. It's a really dense article but a really worthwhile one to read as well. Another huge story this week was the gambling. The story of Jaden Stevenson developed over the week and he has received his punishment for betting on games. Uh, Lucy, you were looking into the myriad of issues that come with gambling and football. Yes, I'll try and cover it in 30 seconds. <laughs> no, I think, look, there's a few issues that this throws up and the first issue is that of the integrity of the game and that as part of that, Most elite athletes, I would say all elite athletes know that they have an obligation not to place bets on their sport, especially on games that they're involved in. And that's fairly clear cut. There's lots of education. Of course, um, Jaden needs to be sanctioned. So I think, you know, you can kind of put that to one side, but bigger is the issue of how entwined sport and specifically here the AFL is with gambling when it's such a devastating issue for so many people. Jake Nile wrote a really good piece in The Age this week. I just want to read a quote from that where he said, it was an exquisite coincidence that in the moment after the AFL's general counsel, Andrew Dillon, announced Stevenson's penalty, an advertisement for the league's sports betting partner popped up on the AFL website during the live stream. There is a real challenge to try and engage in football without exposure to betting advertising. You can't go to the grounds and not see it unless it's at Geelong. But websites, TV, anytime that you check the ladder, you are gonna you're going to find it. It raises this question, and Jake does this in his piece, about whether this is going to be the case that really forces the AFL to to think about it. The only other point I'd like to make is that it is possible to go forward without gambling, as the English Football Association have done. So in 2017, they terminated their contract with a big betting partner that was worth £4 million a year. They had three years left to run that contract, so they no longer have a betting partner. And that came after there'd been a number of high-profile cases where players had been caught placing bets and had had sanctions. It's a big issue. It's not going away. Yeah, it's something that has uh, we've spoken about before and it's affected my life. So I understand those people who say a bet here and there is like a lovely thing to do on a Saturday and that's okay. And I get that, but I don't think we need advertising for that. Those people are going to do it just like the people um, who are going to drink or smoke and they do it responsibly and they don't need advertising to um, get them going. I think gambling only hurts kids and I really, really think that it's a big issue. And Jaden Stevenson said that he's apologised to his club, admitting recent events had 
almost scared me off gambling altogether, unquote. And it's like, what does it take? How can he be so irresponsible? And and I absolutely think there should be no advertising to do with gambling. The ways and means that they suck people in when they do betting where if you get your money back, if certain things happen, um, seems to, it's a trick on young brains, Mm, don't you think, Nicole? Absolutely. And it's not like the model doesn't exist. I mean, we remember in the old days, there was cigarettes used to sponsor the cricket. We used to have alcohol advertising everywhere. This is has the same restrictions in that you have to be 18 as both tobacco and alcohol. The model for limiting and restricting access to advertising to children already exists for those particular leisure activities, I guess you call them. It's not complicated. Children should not be exposed and they should not understand odds and how to measure odds before they even understand the rules of the game. Titus O'Reilly nailed it, I think. He said, Jaden Stevenson has been handed a 22-match ban, 12 matches suspended and fined $20,000. I'm disappointed as I'd backed him to get seven weeks through the AFL's official wagering partner. (laughs) Yeah, mm, the hypocrisy so is true. dense. We're talking about the integrity of sport. Mm. Integrity comes under question when your score review system does not work. This is a huge issue for our game, Nicole. And now we kind of know why, I think. <laughs> there was uh, Fox Footy did an investigation into the score review system because we have had, I think, seven errors that have been actually overturned. The report that they did revealed that these score review operators are paid just $250 a week, that they're actual AFL officers, so they're not actual trained umpires or former umpires or training umpires. They have other jobs, and this is effectively their moonlight gig. They're really overworked during the games and expected to turn around a response in 22 seconds, which the technology simply doesn't allow for in terms of all the different angles you have to consider. The claim is that the AFL is cost-cutting and it's all about saving money and that they've obviously have been not at all transparent about this so far either. Um, Half of them last year started for the first time and the other half, this is their first year doing it. And given the the importance of this and, you know, we've got a grand final, who knows how close it's going to be. If that actually is contingent on these people who are not trying to to measure what is ultimately the whole point of a game is to get the scores right, we're in real trouble. I don't think it matters that they're not umpires. I really don't. You don't want them to be able to measure that? No. Can't you they just be need to have though? really good eyesight. To be fair, I could see with my human eyes that that was a goal that Ben Brown gave. <laughs> yes, and yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. my point. I don't, they're fairly basic parameters. But what about the can, timing thing and the fact that the technology I think is, it's more about the technology. I think, you know, it's hard if you don't have the right view. I'm sure time pressure comes into it. But I think the fact that they're not umpires isn't. The bit that I don't care about is how much they earn. Do you think they're going to make a better decision if they get paid more? Like, no, I just think it's like more that. about whether they've invested in actual expertise. Mm. And I do think there's something to be said for being able to measure that. I do think there's, you know, the umpires have a particular highly trained skill. And anyway. I think they definitely do when they're on the ground. Mm. But I think looking at a screen, I think it's different. There's two things. What did we do, you know, in the days of landlines and... uh Transistors. Mm. And secondly, moonlighting. I'm seeing Sybil Shepherd yeah. and Bruce, <laughs> Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. Oh my God, love I love that, that show. show. One show that I don't love and I feel quite fine about going on the record about this is that there was a report that the footy show with Trevor Marmalade, Eddie Maguire and Sam Newman is coming back just for a grand final special. The hypocrisy of this made my hair curl. We have just lived through... Eddie falling on his sword about what he saw Mm. of himself reflected back from the Adam Goods documentary. How 
anyone, especially a man in the position of power that he has, can say that he feels so deeply um, sorry for the part that he played in the Goods documentary and story and then go on and make a commercial decision to hitch his wagon to Sam Newman again and roll this puppy back out after 35 years again is an absolute joke. And the fact that the AFL footy media hasn't leapt on that and no one queries that, it just makes me feel like we are living in the most ridiculous vacuum. My head exploded when I saw this. And the fact that Eddie has been so front and centre of, you know, a lot of screenings and um, has gone on the record saying how heartbroken he is. And, if he's, you know, this is a quote from him that if you can see someone who's been a champion of the game, got to the end of his celebrated career and didn't want to do a lap of honour at the MCG, it's heartbreaking. We have to learn from that. That's why I encourage people to go. He said that he wants to be part of the solution, but then he's going to sit and share a desk and give a microphone to somebody like Sam Newman, completely undermines it. The fact that Channel 9 are behind it, I think, is just disgraceful. I think the timing is going to be really, really problematic for this because... And, that, and it might actually force it not to go ahead because mm. the documentary will screen on... Free to air. Free to air, probably, you know, July, August. If they want to be doing this at the end of August. Yeah, good luck. Let's move on. Alicia, we wanted to talk about underachieving and I just wanted to out myself here that you know where people often say, you know, he's a quiet achiever. I know this of me that I am a loud underachiever. (laughs) Yeah. I wear my flag. And I remember in high school I was, you know, quite vocal and fun and everything like that. But someone said, look, we don't have anyone doing butterfly. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'd never done it before. And, yes, you know, I finished 25 minutes later than everyone else. I'm just such a slow Slow, slow learner. Can we have an outer sanctum butterfly race oh. over summer? Oh Felicity goodness. would win. Yeah, Felicity's she's really good. You yeah, know, she's got those good massive swimmer. feet. They're like, yeah, so I love swimming, but butterfly. And kudos to anyone who can do it. But of course, uh, Essendon has been accused of underachieving and it's, you know, not looking good for John Warsfold. Former Essendon captain Brendan Goddard says his former club's list is underachieving and of course they're coming under fire and if you look at a lot of clubs this year we are there's so many that are underachieving god bless them um i just thought that thing of underachieving when your your expectations especially in football what do you do how have you underachieved lucy <laughs> Who gets to oh. choose too? Yeah. Like, who determines that? We don't have enough time to talk about the ways that I've <laughs> underachieved. <laughs> but it's that expectation, isn't it, of what a football club should and shouldn't do in a year. Like we said about those interstate clubs, shouldn't we be celebrating them rather than looking at all the Victorian teams underachieving? I think the most hilarious thing about any sporting competition is that at the end of the day, there's going to be one winner. Yeah. And so the reality is there's going to be a whole lot of people who don't like, everybody starts out saying that this is what we're aiming for. Of Mm. course they do. (laughs) Unless you're Gary Pert. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> no, 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 we meant to be shit at the yeah. beginning. Yeah, I think the ways in which we underachieve are really here on display every week <laughs> yeah. on the Addison <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but I think it's about managing expectations. Yeah. yeah. So I am so happy for people to underachieve. I just wish that with it came 
the honesty factor where they go like, mm, you know what, ninth is what we expected. And <laughs> a badge. I would love to see and that. And a badge. I'd like a badge yeah. to go with it. And those women overachieving on the weekend, just that's fantastic and we bow down to them. But uh, God bless those people on the bottom of the ladder. Oh, sorry, that's Carlton. God bless them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ali Blackman and you're listening to the Yadda Sanctum. Hang on to your keyboards, everyone. Felicity's been Googling again. Here is the segment we all know and love. So three things happened after last week's segment on why a goal's worth six points and how the term behind came about. The first was a tweet asking how long it would be until I went completely off course and Googled something entirely random and irrelevant to the game of AFL. Well, as it turns out, not long. The second thing that happened was a message saying the origins of football scoring are easy. But what about tennis? How did that hot mess come about? And the third, well, Ash Barty became the world number one and the vision was clear. On today's football podcast about all football things related to football, we need to talk about the scoring system for tennis. Listeners to the pod will know that Maths and I are not friends, but even I can identify that if a pattern goes 0, 15, 30, the next number in the sequence is 45. So why on earth is it 40 in tennis? Well, ironically, when you Google this, the first theory that comes up is that scoring comes from medieval times and is related to the hands on a clock moving around the face until you win at midnight. Unless the battery on your medieval clock dies at 11.40, how on earth is this even a theory? I mean, surely it plays into why it should be 15, 30, 45 rather than any kind of explanation as to why it doesn't. Now, apologists for this idea do go on to state that 40 is actually just an abbreviation of 45. Good to know. And great news for anyone age 45 out there. Just use the accepted abbreviation from now on and buy yourself another five years of youth. But in my opinion, the smarter theory relates to an early form of the game called jeu de poum, it precursor to tennis, which initially used the hand instead of a racket. This game was hugely popular with estimates that prior to the French Revolution, there was more than a thousand jeux de poume courts in Paris alone. After the famous revolutionary cry, of course, though, of let them eat strawberries at Wimbledon, the game did die off. But in the game of jeux de poume, you started at the baseline and when you won a point, you got to move closer to the net by a set distance. A traditional court was 90 feet in length, so 45 feet on each side. When the server scored, he or she moved forward 15 feet. If the server scored again, they'd move another 15 feet. The third time they scored, they couldn't move another 15 feet or else they would be on top of the net. So they would only move 10 feet closer to allow a little space between the player and the net to play their winning shot. So the first point got you to 15, the second to 30 and the third to 40. And the next point was the winner. To me, that's pretty clear. The other thing was, why do we say love instead of zero? The French word for egg is leuf and a zero resembles an egg. Try it. I love footy. I love love. Last week, we were all tearing our hair out when Gil McLaughlin and Richard Goiter said we need to make the outer safe for people so that men can bring their wives and girlfriends to the football. <laughs> so we knew that there was research and we knew that our lived experience demonstrated that there has been women supporting football for a very long time, but we thought we'd get an actual expert in to talk about it. We welcome to the Outer Sanctum Matthew Klugman, who is a lecturer in sports studies at Victoria University, and you've written so many amazing articles 
about this very topic. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum, Matthew. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. So is it just our lived experience or are we crazy in thinking that there have been women in the outer supporting AFL and Australian rules football for many, many years? Definitely not just your lived experience. Uh, it goes back more than 100 years. And you know, one of the things that's always defined the kind of passions around Aussie rules is that women have been fully included in that space. Uh, even when they, uh, they, you know, they've been excluded in some ways, they, they've brought themselves there, you know, so they haven't listened to, to the men trying to say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, nah. <laughs> the old this yeah, is, nah. This is a space for blokes. You know, I've, I've been fascinated by the way women have made the outer their own space and enjoyed the full gamut of the emotions through that. Matthew, given that long history, why do you think that in some circles, women's involvement in AFL, either as fans or as commentators or journalists, is still contested? Yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting questions. And I kind of work with this on my students as well. Part of it are questions of memory. So the stories told are are about the, the male players, the male coaches and the male fans. So every generation of women have to act like pioneers often, particularly in terms of the playing, the media roles, uh, the administrative roles. So that's a huge burden. It's wonderful to have pioneers, but the kind of burden of that is substantial and not knowing that you're standing on other people's shoulders. So that kind of forgetting is active and vital and I think kind of works to uh, re-inscribe it as as if it's a male space. Uh, Would so, you say an erasing of women's stories around football? Yeah, hmm. definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, when I've been looking at um, barracas from the 1890s and early 1900s, for instance, they're, they're continually spoken of as if they're curiosities, as if they don't quite belong or as if they're invading male space. Even after they've been there for more than a decade, they're still invading There's that language. But then when you read about what they're actually doing, they're just there. Once women get the vote at the end of 1908, for the first time, you start seeing some men saying, oh, women shouldn't be allowed to go to the football. So that's the first time I've kind of... So there's this backlash, which is which is really interesting. And the language used is the kind of anti-suffragette language. So, you know, the women should be in the home uh, making the meals for the men. So someone writes a letter to... A, a person describing themselves as medial uh, writes a letter to the Herald saying, women are ruining it. It's just a space for men. Uh, there's too much bad language for the women and they should just be at home preparing the dinners that the men will come back to after they've been at the footy. Uh, and it's just greeted with ridicule. Uh, so there's these fantastic set of, of letters in response, like one from Comet saying, oh, there's there's nothing that a lesser astral body like myself would want to do than prepare meals for, <laughs> for Meteor. Uh, you know, thank you for the joy of that. And one of the in- interesting ones is someone saying, well, we're supposed to be free, among other places. Melbourne has a really interesting radical history and the women are, f- are claiming their agency really strongly. There's an interesting um, cartoon in The Punch, which kind of opens, or says, you know, should women go to the football? And then at the bottom it says, doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Women are going and and who's going to stop them? You know, you talk about the barracas as being a particular Mm. thing, like it's a cultural thing that was unique or at least specific to AFL or Australian football. What is it about the game or is it about Melbourne that created this environment that was so radical and so kind of out there? Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of levels to that. I think in some ways you're getting fervent spectator cultures emerging around a lot of sports around the world at the same time. But in Melbourne, it it has a particular culture to it because of the city's history as a, as a kind of gold rush 
city. All these people flocking to Melbourne, there's questions of the land and, and what's happening to the Indigenous people, but the people flocking are wanting a better life, you know. So Melbourne has a kind of history, a bit like San Francisco, where all these people have been wanting change in their lives, come to Melbourne, and, and because the city is a new space, they're able to get that, whereas they weren't uh, in other places. So Melbourne's the first place that has the, the eight-hour working day. So it becomes this kind of what's described as a working man's paradise, but also a working woman's paradise. The game is played in the parks and gardens. There's all these parks and gardens because the city's rich with all the, the money flowing through. And so there's this sense that everyone watches and everyone's expected to barrack. Um, and so that kind of gives a sense as to why women feel like, you know, they've been watching it, you know, and they, and they will continue watching it. And so they're part of that fervent culture, whereas with, say, you know, association football or soccer in England, there's a clear sense they want to be and for the cup games they are, for the big games they go, but other, other times it, it, it's much more of an exclusionary space. Speaking of soccer or the world game and looking at the UK, last year I saw a photo of two ladies who would have been in their 80s who'd been long-time members of Man. City and the team had these amazing older women in the in the strips walking out with the team and that's something that you don't see very often and you certainly don't see that in Australian rules football. We see little kids running out, we see mm. lots of old men being honoured on the field but we very rarely see very old women being honoured on the yeah. field. However, in the stands and in the outer, yeah. that is a whole breed of people. I was yeah. wondering if you had any data that backs up the fact that Australian rules football fans who are female stay with the game. Don't have any data about that, but it's clear that women become a really significant part of the outer early on in Aussie rules and that that stays, stays the same way. And so when I was researching contemporary fans, um, one of the most interesting fans I spoke to, you know, was a third generation through a matrilineal line of supporters. And when she went to the games as a kid, the joy was that her grandmother, who'd worked in a pub all her life, um, would sometimes forget herself and let loose with the language <laughs> of the pub. And the kids just came w- hoping for those moments where she would. <laughs> and so she, like many other kids and, and many other girls as well as boys, had learned to swear at the footy. <laughs> One of the issues that you write about, which I just find fascinating, is the idea of civility around the crowds. And it's been something that's been in the news this week. Mm. You wrote a great piece in The Conversation that really talks about that tension between we like the atmosphere that's created by a very loud crowd, but if you look too closely, it can be problematic. What is the way forward, do you think, you know, at a time when organisations like the AFL are wanting to make sure that people feel safe? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the AFL reacted quite defensively to that, you know, on the back of the history of, of the goods, you know, the shameful treatment of goods. But I think the AFL has a, has a real chance to start leading conversations that we really need to have. What forms of shouting out are OK? Is it OK to call someone a bald-headed flog? You know, is it OK to say to a male player that, he kicks like a girl. I think we need these conversations. You know, my view is that it's not okay to demean girls in that way. I don't really have an issue with someone being called a bald-headed flog, you know, or other forms which criticise bad decisions or, or decisions viewed as bad. But I think it's a, it's a conversation we need to have because it, it starts getting into those really important questions about spatial safety and about how can we be passionate, but also the kind of, because there's so many shouts that are, that are sexist. You know, there's so many 
shouts that are misogynistic. Uh, there's trans issues as well, and those sort of things. And I, I don't, you know, I love the raucous atmosphere of footy, but I think we need to engage with those aspects of it as well. Is there a history of women being quite raucous and throwing out lines to umpires as much as there are men doing that? Yeah, definitely, you know. And, and so the, the women who become barrackers, because ba- to barrack initially means to shout out abuse. Oh. Uh, and so it's a it's a negative uh, it's a defensive reaction to this culture emerging. You know these barrackers are ruining the game. They're going and shouting out abuse, and the game's supposed to create strong and fair people. And they're abusing the umpires who are supposed to uphold those ideals of fairness. So it's a real threat in that way. Um, and women, yeah, they they start abusing the umpires as well. So there, there's famous stories of women using their hat pins to, as weapons uh, against players and other fans, other barrackers and, and umpires. There's a glorious story about a woman, you know, on a rainy day, a moment of silence at the ground and, and she yells out at the umpire that uh, he's getting money deceitfully uh, and he knows no more about the rules than a babe in arms. And, and the writer of it kind of notes that, you know, the umpire looks up and palpably winces, you know, so it hit the, it hit the mark. Anecdotally, we're hearing that it's more unsafe to go to the footy and a lot of people are feeling more uncomfortable, but what is your understanding of that throughout the ages? Has it ebbed and flowed? Look, I think the passionate culture is, has always never been for everyone and so I mean, one of the things I'm intrigued by is the history of anti-football sentiments. Um, and so the emergence of the Anti-Football League in 1967, for instance, and, you know, when they emerge through the Sun News Pictorial, <laughs> which is the kind of biggest football paper in town, uh, they get more members than Collingwood within a few months. Wow. So there's always been this antipathy to the, you know, how much it's spoken about and, and the kind of extraordinary meaning that it has um, in places like Melbourne. But it, I was intrigued, you know, in terms of the conversation piece by quite a few people saying, yeah, I went once and I heard the abuse and I never went again. There's also research in terms of the Pride Games where people who kind of come under the rainbow flag, a lot of them spoke about feeling unsafe. Thank you so much for coming in and giving us a little... It's like you've brought to life what we've all Mm. felt and it's so weird to hear the stories from 100 years ago that feel like the same stories that we tell in here every week. You've actually made a whole lot of sense of something that is very visceral for us. So thank you so much and I really enjoy following you on Twitter and I hope that people who listen to this podcast and enjoyed your your conversation with us today will also follow you because you tweet some amazing things about football and fandom and barracking will forever stay with me. See the barracking are shouting as all barrackers should or should they I guess is the question Matthews, Bring your hat pin. Thank you so much for joining us in the Outer Sanctum. Cheers, thanks It's, Thank it's been a thrill to be here Alright, let's go around the grounds Hi there, I'm Alicia Eva, player at the GWS Giants and also an equal backline coach at the GWS Giants Hello, Alicia Eva. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum. We're so pleased to be talking to you. We mostly talk to you when you're in the capacity of being a player, but of course you were awarded the AFL Coaches Association Coaching Pathway Scholarship for 2019, which is really exciting. Have you started that program yet? I absolutely have. I didn't really know what to expect at first and I'm really lucky that the club kind of pushed me to to put the application through and really helped me out there. So I've mentored by John Westfold, so I've met with him a couple of times and there's been a a Skype call here and there. So that part of the the scholarship's underway Um, and I've just been discussing the the study tour in America, which is coming up in October. So I'm looking forward to to starting that and then, of course, I guess the the educational process in the next coach program, um, that'll begin towards the end of the year. 
from AFLW into coaching has been pretty busy. Can I just quickly ask you, when you're on a Skype call with John Worsfold and he is your mentor, do you check in with him and see how he's going? Because <laughs> he might need a shoulder as well at the moment. <laughs> um, I, I did when I spoke to him last time. I think he was about to head over to Perth. So, yeah, it's, it's always good to check in on, on people, no matter if they're your mentor or or vice versa. So yeah, no, he was he's doing really well. He's been great great for me to talk to and um of course the Giants have Essendon this week, so I haven't scrapped him this week, but um <laughs> but I'm sure um yeah, in the next couple of weeks I'll I'll either catch up with him down in Melbourne or, or there'll be another Skype call. Alicia, I'd love to know what your long term ambitions are. Do you are you a writer down of goals? <laughs> That's a great question. I think at the start of the year, I was writing everything down and that was my New Year's resolution. I wanted to make sure I was writing down my short-term and my long-term goals. But what I've noticed in my journey so far is that opportunities kind of open up as the weeks go by and those, you know, the goalposts change, pardon the pun there. But um, <laughs> when I think about my long-term, you know, after playing, of course, I hope to be playing for as long as I can be. Uh, I certainly want to be working in, in an AFL environment, um, whether that's in the AFLW program or ASL space. I certainly want to make. I, I want to be working full time within an AFL system. I have, as part of my work with with Wusher, I have part of what he wanted me to do was to kind of write down those long term goals. So that was that was a, a hard task for me to do because I don't like to put a limit on myself, but I also want to make sure I'm I'm really realistic. So I guess long term in an AFL system somewhere. Uh, in the next 10 years. It's Alicia. I think if we do a stage act, we should be Alicia squared. That would be good. Um, <laughs> New podcast. Yeah, that's – oh, yeah, I like it. Um, I love watching footage of you when you're younger playing. You are just a powerhouse and you have command of the footy. So anyone listening, please go and look at it online. You also said that you developed a footy brain, which is the number one requirement for coaches. Describe that footy brain for us. Yeah, when I was younger, so I, I started playing football from a really, really young age. I'm one of a few, I guess, of the older girls, I should say. I'm <laughs> probably classifying myself as an older girl now. I'm probably one of the few who was able to go through the entire pathway from Auskick up until ASLW. And I think because I have had that, you know, that 15 years of playing junior football and watching it from such a young age, I think you just naturally you have a greater understanding and anticipation of where the ball is going to go or where you need to run to or what's going to happen next. I think that's what we're finding in the AFLW system at the moment where you've got girls that have come across from different sports or are new to the game. And first and foremost, the skill acquisition is super important, but then the footy IQ needs to be fast-tracked. I think having that that junior football pathway for me and going to the football every single weekend um, and watching every single game, which probably drove my sisters and, and mum crazy, um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of enabled me to, to build that football IQ, which hopefully I'm passing on to my teammates and the young guys that I'm coaching at the moment. Alicia, it's Nicole here. Um, you talked about having the football brain. So obviously that's why you've been identified for this particular pathway, but a lot of women aren't and miss out on those opportunities. And one of the things that's cited is how much pressure is on the player. I mean, it's really on you ultimately on your head. But is managing the pressure, is handling that psychological component part of the development of coaching? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's not, I certainly haven't undertaken a role quite significant as an AFL head coach role, but I I can't speak to the the pressure that those guys are under. But for me personally, it's not so much pressure, but you just want to, I have some perfectionist tendencies and you want to make sure that you're prepared, almost over-prepared. You want to make sure that you've covered off every scenario that the opposition are going to throw at you. You want to make sure that when your players come to you with circumstances or they come to you with, with what-ifs that you that you calculated and you can you know give them a short and fast 
response. And for me, I think that's certainly stepping into the ASL space. Um, that's a new space for me. I, I felt a little bit of pressure initially to make sure that I was ticking every every single box and being as prepared as I could be. But what I have learned along the process is you've got all these amazing footy brains around you as well. I'm really lucky to work pretty closely with Mark McVay, who's the backline coach here at the Giants. And, you know, does he have the answer to everything immediately? No, he doesn't. There's, there's a process of conversation that you go through with all your other line coaches and your head coaches and your players. I guess, yeah, I'm learning pretty quickly that, yes, I need to be prepared. Yes, I need to have done my reviews and do my homework. And, and the communication piece is, is really important as well, knowing how to communicate to your players, what they best um, pick up on or, or how they best take feedback. Um, and just making sure that you're prepared is kind of ease the pressure, so to speak, that I've placed on myself. Alicia, we can't wait for you to go on the US study tour and to follow the whole thing on Instagram and see <laughs> all of the access that you get. But before we let you go, how is the state of women's footy or footy in New South Wales? How's it going? Um, look, it's, <laughs> I know I had a really lengthy discussion with Lucy at the AFLW board. <laughs> Please uh, apologise for that. Please look, don't. <laughs> it's going well. Look, it's, it's an area that, that I'm pretty passionate about. Coming from Victoria, you know, the mecca of Australian rules football, some would say. Um, and it is very different to up here in New South Wales. The geography of where the girls have to come from to get to state training is, you know, some girls come from Broken Hill and they're in the car longer um, than what they are actually at training camp. So it's, mm. It is difficult, but the Giants are doing some, are making some, you know, really great steps up here. And we've got five invitational games in the VFL at the moment, so we've got a VFL squad that trained together up here. Um, and in that squad, we've got some of the, um, I guess, the, the talented girls coming through from the under 18 pathway who are joining in that. So it's certainly growing. We've got to work out a way to get girls together more consistently and how we can fast-track the development of of coaches as well. It's a challenge, um, something that we're all aware of, but as long as we keep pushing the notion to improve coaching and to to get young talent together as often as possible, um, it should go onwards and upwards from here. Is there one thing, Alicia, that you think the AFL could do that would help that (laughs) development in Sydney? We're playing in the VFL at the moment. My wish, and this is probably, I know it's shared by a few, is if we could have a regular VFL license, so we have girls that are playing in the top level, you know, as often as possible outside of AFLW. That would be huge in terms of retention strategy up here in, in Sydney. From that also comes when we have, you know, women and girls come from local clubs, they join this VFL program. They may not play every weekend, but they take what they're learning back to local clubs. Um, we can also invite coaches into that program. Coaches can come in and take that away back to their local clubs. It's kind of a domino effect from there, but it's no surprise. It is, it is, it's still very much a growing game up here in Sydney and we're trying to do as much as we can and we can see, you know, I've been out to a fair few schools in the last couple of weeks and the schools, football, Australian rules football in schools has just exploded. So there are numbers there. Everyone's wanting to play football up here. We've just got to, I guess, continue to work on how we streamline the process and make sure we get the best talent together as often as possible. Alicia, thank you so much for speaking with us. We love seeing you through the midfield, on the boundary reporting and in the commentary <laughs> box. You're doing it all. And At the we same know, time. And we see you. I know you're in New South Wales and we don't get to actually catch up with you that often, but we really see you. We know how much work you're doing and people are always saying the most amazing things about you. So oh. keep on trucking. We love you so much <laughs> and thanks for joining us on the Outer Sanctum. Oh, no, thank you very much. Love chatting you guys. So hopefully get to chat to you again soon. All right, ladies, any final business? Nicole? There's uh, been some talk about the AFL playing an actual premiership game in the United States of America. There's <gasps> Howdy. I know. <laughs> For those of you playing along at home, 
howdy's what Nicole says when she's trying to be American. <laughs> I'm very good at that accent. GWS seems to be the forerunners, very keen on this prospect. But yeah, they're, they're very much in the preliminary stages, but the logistics of finding a ground are the, the right size and the season kind of um, being hot, obviously. It'll be summer when our regular season's on. They're one of the issues. And they it, there is talk also of perhaps having the AFLX format being shipped over there as an alternative. In my heart, I'm thinking, I feel like we've done this before. Remember they did the exhibition games in the US and the UK? It didn't take off. And I reckon the big opportunity is for women's footy. So do I. Mm. You know, they've got the support there. It's a novelty. It's a brand new kind of brand and a brand new look. And and I don't understand why they're going to keep pushing that format. As we know from the players that we had on the show like, you know, a month ago, Mm. it's a huge novelty that women are getting to play out of the same franchise here, which isn't an opportunity for a contact sport for women in the US. So I think you're right. I think AFLW is what we take to the world. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing already. And that sort of leads into what my final business was. And look, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I'm not going to be here for the next few weeks Mm -hmm. because I'm going on an exploratory um, tour (laughs) of Europe um, (laughs) to explore the amazing groundswell of Australian rules football in Croatia. (laughs) On yachts in Croatia? Yes. It's a modified version of the game. (laughs) It is. Did you know this? So the reason I came across it was this fantastic little Instagram page called Aussie Rules Croatia. And you'll see the Croatian queens who, like, they post photos all the time of training and games and doing the same thing as, you know, women are doing all over the world, kicking the football, lots of dog content, and I just love (laughs) it. But in Croatia, the first club was actually founded in 2005. And since then, Australian football has spread amongst men and women, and they compete in a number of leagues. So there's the Croatian and Regional League. They compete in the Croatian Cup and the European Champions League. Um, They've been really successful in Europe and in international competitions. Amazing. I thought that was going to be a joke. I didn't really... I thought it was going to be a joke too. It wasn't. It's not a joke. Does that mean your holidays are tax write-off? Damn straight. (laughs) Are you even an AFLW and an AFLM player if you don't post pictures of your dog? No. I think it's, yeah, it's a requirement. <laughs> it's a requirement. In their player contracts. I've got two final biznai. One from, because <laughs> that's the plural, plural. One is from a dear listener of ours in Sydney called Patrick Stack, um, that more than twice as many free-to-air viewers turned in to watch the women's state of origin clash in Sydney than the Sydney Hawthorne AFL-M encounter on the weekend, which indicates a huge interest in the fastest growing sector of rugby league, which is the women's competition. So that was amazing. Mm. But hold on to your hats, ladies and gentlemen. When I say hats, I mean stack hats because there's some news coming out this morning that breakdancing is provisionally going to be an Olympic sport at the <laughs> next Olympics. I've never been more That's excited tasty. in my life. So pop and lock. Pop and lock. Get your cardboard. Put it on the <laughs> ground. Put on your stack hat. I mean, this is this opens up a world of, Inter- firstly, entertainment, but also opportunity. Yeah. Bring Are it on. Are hoops part of the <laughs> Olympics? They should be, Leash. I feel yeah. like you would be very good at hula hooping. Get, don't get me started. I'm awesome. We need pictures. <laughs> How's your oh, hips? it's not real. Are you potentially going to do a PB, go to the Pampax something? You, you bet. I was in a hula hoop grunge band. <laughs> I was made for this shit. I was made for it. <laughs> None of that sentence surprises me. All right. Have you got any final business, Alicia, sometimes? Just that uh, football is uh, awesome. <laughs> All right, well, on that note, there's nothing else left to say, but go footy!
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Mott. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both as twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. Well, something, something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) We're professional unprofessionals, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST recommends. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.